Hark, it's an 87th Precinct Christmas special episode. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, their spin-offs and other related things, such as today's topic, Barney Miller, and, in particular, the episode Christmas Story from Season 3. To look at the episode, I'm joined in my magical wintry grotto by Santa's two favourite elves, Mr Morgan, in charge of sticking the wheels onto bright and shiny fire trucks brown. Hello. And Mr Stephen, lead tester of the voice box on creepy dollies that tell you they love you when you pull the string, Royston. Uh, Hello. Classic toys, both those (laughs) things. Uh, My name is Paul Abbott and I am Santa's increasingly larger helper. Christmas references. Yeah. That's what's happening there. I see. (laughs) Just before we get going, I'll just sort of do a little summing up of the year, because this will be our Christmas episode, and looking back, as you do at this time of year, reflecting on the things (laughs) that have gone before, we've put out 28 episodes of this podcast this year. Crikey. That's 11, 11 books we've done, and that means 11 bonus episodes as well. I've put out two solo, little mini solo episodes, mm-hmm. and I've done four bonus episodes, if you count this one as well. Blimey. And so that's quite good, isn't it? There, there you go. Yeah. Prolific. Been, been working hard. We've been hardly working. Know, yeah. <laughs> it's all McBain all of the time, except when it's about something else. We have just watched this episode of Barney Miller, and the reason for this is because people kept saying to me, oh, Hill Street Blues, yeah, I can see how that's influenced by slash ripped off the... Um, 87th Precinct, but people kept saying, I thought Barney Miller was as well, and I'd never heard of Barney Miller, and so we've talked about it a couple of times in passing, but today we've watched an episode, and so I've watched a couple of episodes before this, but for you two it was a first time, wasn't it? It, it was, was indeed, yeah. yeah. What better than a Christmas episode? Conveniently, it also is an episode that was broadcast in December of 1976, so in relation to the books we've been looking at, so we've just done So Long As You Both Shall Live... In, that was released in 1976. The next one we'll be looking at is Long Time No See, 1977. So this episode of TV sits nicely at the end of the year in which the last book we looked at came out. Mm-hmm. So there's your McBain context for that, mm-hmm. anyway. And it was just called Christmas Story, Season 3 of Barney Miller, Episode 10, broadcast on the 23rd of December, 1976. How did you find Barney Miller just in general, then, having watched half an hour of it? It was quite enjoyable, actually, yeah. Yeah, did, did enjoy it. Got had a, a few um, good, solid chuckles to it. it um, some, of, some of the writing, I think, still stands up pretty well, actually. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah. It didn't seem particularly dated, did it? Yeah, it, when someone says sitcom from 1976, you're normally kind of on your guard because you just think, oh, this is not going to be funny anymore. But hmm. no, I, I, I uh, yeah, did enjoy it. Yeah, nice ensemble comedy. Absolutely. Thing. That would have been before Hill Street Blues yeah, then, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. And I mean, there's a tradition of, of cop comedies, like one called Car 54, Where Are You, was quite well known. Mm. So there'd always been sort of cop comedies, because they are an ensemble thing and they tend to be set in particular situations, so it works quite well, I think, as a as a setup. Yep. In the same way that it does for the actual cop stories and, and mm. things like Hill Street Blues and the, the McBain books as well. Was the other one you watched all filmed in the squad room as well? Yeah. Entirely. So I think so the that. impression I get is that it is a studio sitcom set in the, mm. in the squad room of the 12th Precinct in New York, which is where Barney Miller's the captain. 
But I think once a season or something, they do like an external one where they're out on the streets or something like that, which I've never seen any of those ones. But yeah, I think it's very studio bound. Yeah, yeah. Nice and cheap to make, really. Yeah, yeah. Once you've got the set up and running. Yeah, so that episode that we watched was directed by a chap called Bruce Bilson. Heck of a pedigree. Did lots of episodes of the TV series Get Smart. The TV series of The Odd Couple featuring Jack Klugman. Are you going to find a Columbo link here? I couldn't. (laughs) I'm sensing. I can smell it in the air. Unless you can extract a Columbo link from the TV series Dinosaurs, which Um, you might remember from the early 90s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dinosaurs? It was like a, a sitcom, but with dinosaurs instead of people is that right yeah, yeah basically uh, it's like remember, Roseanne but they were all dinosaurs I remember because I remember the Simpsons parodying it because like oh isn't it amazing how it's it's like a, a live action sitcom but they uh, I think the Simpsons some of the Simpsons writers rather felt like dinosaurs had just pinched the idea of the Simpsons but turned it into dinosaurs yeah <laughs> I've never even heard of it how could you how could you miss it it was a huge phenomenon at the time uh-uh. because it had a hilarious baby dinosaur in it that would say its catchphrase not the mama a lot in an annoying voice. I never uh, saw it, but I remember it existing. No, I think it passed me by. Well, you know, you can go back and look it up. But yeah, the man who directed this episode of Barney Miller directed quite a few episodes of Dinosaurs. A few episodes of Hawaii Five-0. Okay. A few episodes of the Doris Day Show. Fantastic. And he directed quite a lot of the series version of Private Benjamin. I did not mm. know such a thing existed. No. I. But, Which came first? Mm. Well, I think Private Benjamin, the series, definitely came after the film. Oh, right, and okay. And didn't star pro- Goldie Horn And probably didn't last tremendously long. I, well, I, I don't guess. know. I've, I've not gone in-depth. Well, mind you, I, I'd, I'd never heard of Barney Miller and it ran for eight series, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think it's ever been on British television, has it? Barney Miller? Yeah. I think, it, I think it was, um, but lots of not, things were that didn't make any re- big not impact. Not being repeated, yeah. yeah. So certainly not in a time when we would have stumbled across it, I don't yeah. think. Never it's, became like a cheers that just goes round and round over and over again no, for definitely decades. Not. That episode that we watched was written by two writers, Tony Sheehan and a chap with the fantastic name of Reinhold Weege. Mm, big fan of his work. Yes, his name. Work. His oeuvre. <laughs> what, what did Weege get up to? Oh, I don't did know. You know anything about him? I did do a quick look, just wrote quite a lot of stuff. I think they basically got into TV production, a lot of these people. Mm. Writer, producers. Yeah. So a few little facts about Barney Miller. It ran from 1975 to 1982 on the ABC network. And the character of Detective Phil Fish, the old guy in it, had his own spin-off. Which lasted for two seasons where it showed him at home with his wife and they foster five children from different racial backgrounds. So it's a zany looking after kids comedy that lasted two seasons after he retires from the 12th precinct. So just, it's a bit weird when you have a spin-off like that, because at least it's at least it's a comedy spun-off from a comedy, not like mm-hmm. with Hill Street Blues, where the character of Detective Bunce has his own spin-off comedy show from Hill Street Blues. That's so, he's, so he's funny in the spin-off, but not in the main? Yeah, sort of, yeah. Weird, yeah. That is peculiar. I do, do enjoy daft spin-off shows. They're, they're, they are always fun. If not necessarily watchable. Yeah. yeah. Quite often, yeah, you get these very good, strong characters within their, yeah, the original, and then they're a bit, yeah, lose their charm, don't they? Yeah, they put them in a different situation, and they, it, that character doesn't really work in that new situation, necessarily. I still think the best ridiculous spin-off show I've ever been introduced to was uh, Baywatch Nights. 
Oh yes, oh, yeah. spectacular. Yeah, it's a show that didn't know what it was when it started well, and yeah. kept changing. So it starts out as more of a kind of um, sort of sexy detective show, and then after that didn't work. Someone cottoned onto the fact that X Files was popular, and it suddenly becomes like some kind of supernatural investigation show. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a ridiculous thing it's that they absolutely persevered not. with it. Bring it back, I say. Everything Definitely. else has been rebooted well, so, yeah. or restarted up again. Bring back Baywatch Nights. <laughs> There's still ghosts near the sea that need investigating. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. From from by investigating by lifeguards who never sleep, apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they're the lifeguards like working in the day and then the same yeah. people are solving Hasselhoff crimes. Hasselhoff does, does, does a busy shift as a lifeguard, comes home, has his tea, straight back out to investigate the paranormal. <laughs> wow. Someone was getting paid for that, for coming up with that His idea. name was David Hasselhoff. No. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway, this episode of Barney Miller Christmas Story, nice little story. It's it's not complicated, is it, particularly? No. Like you say, it's all set in one, one room. I suppose the question, actually, before we talk about it in a, the episode is, can you see why people are saying the 87th Precinct and Barney Miller might have something in common? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, kind of, it, it kind of seems like a show made up out of like the slightly lighter toned little vignettes from the squadron from an 87 precinct book. Doesn't it really? Yeah. It's like you could just string three of those together and that'd be an episode. Definitely. Um, it, it's got that same sort of, yeah, banter between the cops and everything, the same sort of these McBainish characters sort of appearing for various reasons. Yeah. I can totally see it. Bad coffee joke in both. Yeah, which is definitely. no, can't be a coincidence. Wouldn't have thought. I yeah. think it's it's interesting that you've got comedy dialogue. It's been written as a comedy sitcom episode, but actually, you could lift it and put it into a McBain novel, and oh. you wouldn't think it unrealistic. Barney Miller nights. Yeah. <laughs> Although it, it is def- definitely kind of light in tone, there's it, it could sit in a in a McBain book. It's still dealing with with crimes. There's a, a detective interviewing a, a prostitute who's been been mugged for her takings. There's a bit of commentary on the the sort of decaying sort of streets of New York and the lowering of the tone of the neighbourhoods. Yeah, definitely. That's, which is very, that's something similar, isn't something it? Something that's going on in the books that we're reading at the moment. and The daft crimes as well. The guy lashing his returned <laughs> gift through the department store window would be type that, of ridiculous. That would absolutely ridiculous. happen in the yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, you can well see that somebody's just read some of the 87th and thought, you know what, the things I really like about this is they're quite funny dialogue funny characters let's just get rid of all the nasty bits yeah just cut out uh, the murders and, and stick it on the telly yeah and that's, and that's why I think it's amazing that I've not found anything where McBain talks about Mar- Bar- Marnie Biller Barney Miller <laughs> I've looked I've tried every sort of combination of searching you can clearly find lots of him talking about Hill Street Blues because he was so annoyed with it but apparently Barney Miller he he was either fine with it or it just passed him by completely. Yeah, but it seems unlikely it would have passed him by. Maybe he just liked it yeah. and thus wasn't annoyed by it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, or perhaps, yeah, perhaps he had some dealings with it. Who knows? Because it is another. Uh, it is a mixed squad room like the 87th Precinct yeah. squad room. You've got Captain Barney Miller is, is our Pete Burns and he's the main character. You've got like an experienced cop in Detective Phil Fish. 
who's the older guy. You've got someone from, I think, a Polish background, which is Wojo, or Detective Stan Wojowicz. I don't know how you pronounce that. I've never heard it said out loud. And it's got lots of letters in it. W-O-J-C-I-E-H-O-W-I-C-Z. Wojowicz. Yeah, it must be about that. So they call him Wojo. Yeah. And he's a bit daft and a bit silly and a bit sort of naive, I suppose, that comes across. You've got uh, Ron Harris, who's an African-American cop, very sharp dresser. You've got Detective Sergeant Nick Yamana, who's Japanese cop, who's quite funny character. Mm. And then in the episode we watched, you had Inspector Frank Luger, who walks in, who's just <laughs> clearly like what would be the equivalent would be Captain Frick, wouldn't yeah, it, in, I guess in so. the 87th Precinct books. Just some doddering old guy in charge of things who just turns up occasionally. <laughs> Make a nuisance of himself. Hmm. Are there some other squad members who occasionally turn up too in, in some episodes from having a little glance yeah, there? Yeah, I believe Wikipedia. so, yeah. But it's clearly down to the core cast for this yeah. Christmas episode here. So, yeah. I like it. I really enjoyed that episode. I thought it was good. Yeah, it's cracking. So, the story itself, we've got just we've got a handful of crimes. So, the big crime that's going on outside of the precinct where the cops have to keep going out to do it, to look into is someone's trying to knock off department store Santas, mm, yeah. basically, and stealing their stuff. So that's all going on in the background. You've got the crime of the guy who's bought a... What did they call it? A Zuma go-round or something? Uh, that's yeah. something very much like that, yeah. <laughs> From a department store. You can't put it together and it's driven him to insanity and he's thrown <laughs> it through the department store window. Because <laughs> they wouldn't open the doors to return it even though he could see them inside. Yeah, that was a good line. <laughs> I could see them inside, but they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> you decapitated a mannequin. <laughs> and you, you open with uh, a lady who's been mugged looking through, or giving details and then looking through sort of mug shots of people as, and... Turns out that she's a prostitute as well. And uh, that a misunderstanding about that leads to a comedy scenario. Mm-hmm. Although that subplot is interesting because oh. at the end, it's supposed to... So this is the plot that involves our Japanese detective, Nick Yamana, because the lady who's been mugged, the prostitute, is Japanese as well. And he doesn't know she's a prostitute. He asks her on a date. And at the end, she turns up and they go on a date together. Now... I think it's portrayed as being very funny and it falls in his favour because mm. they're all sort of saying, you know, sort of warning him a bit, you know, so yeah. he knows. And he's a bit like, oh, should I? I think you would have concerns as a cop. <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. if you, even once you've knocked off for the day, in, a, in, a, in fact, it's in a sitcom and it's like, yeah, and the cop goes out with a prostitute. Yeah, that that sort of, yeah, odd bit at the end where he's like, uh, well, I'm officially off duty now. And she's like, yeah, so am I now. Like, mm. We're going to go, ah, oh, Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> they're going out because they like each other, not because it's some kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was quite good the way it played, it in, in, played in the story, but it's, it's, it's like so much of what happens in the 87th Precinct where it's like, stop chatting up people who've come into the squadron because their father's <laughs> been shot or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can't help themselves. Perhaps it was a lot, uh, an ongoing joke with him and... His yeah, uh, maybe. lack of uh, success with uh, ladies. Quite possibly. Yeah. Oh, and the other subplot is that they'd all agreed not to buy each other presents, but they all end up buying each other presents. Yeah. Much to Barney Miller's distress. Hmm. <laughs> taking it at face value. Oh, yeah. 
But then he gave a great present in inviting the mad inspector, oh, the inspector. around for Christmas Day. He's been dropping he? some not at all subtle hints about how terribly lonely he's going to be on, on Christmas Day. I like the bit about he- heating up some fish sticks and polishing his pistol. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a, a joke in there about this. he's got a TV and he says the model of a TV and it's one that was clearly a popular model in like the 1930s. Yeah. But uh, no, definite parallels with the characters, I would say, yeah. Yeah, um, and the dynamic as yeah. well. Without anyone being too directly, kind yeah, of obviously yeah. a cipher for anyone in the eighty seventh, there are, there are certainly parallels. And yeah, because you don't really have the. Uh, there's no older kind of cop in the eighty seventh precinct. No, that's, is that's, there? That's, there's no grizzled that, older detective. And yet that's something that uh, Barney Miller and uh, Hill Street Blues have in common. The older sergeant in Hill Street Blues, and yeah. you know the guys on the threshold of retirement. That's like a character totally missing from the eighty yeah. seventh precinct. I don't think there was there's ever. Any, I mean, you come across quite. some cops in passing in the eighty seventh precinct who are referenced who are uh. older now and again, but only as passing characters, yeah. never as a, a big part. Because I suppose in McBain world, if you put in an old character on the edge of retirement, you can't necessarily then have him in the next forty books. And mm. still at that. Thing. Or can you? I don't know. Well, he subtly... Well, we've talked about this before, haven't we? So he, he does subtly age them all, but it would be difficult to subtly age somebody who's about to retire because mm. you would have to yeah. retire him. <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose he's the only only archetype thing that's missing from the 87th mm. precinct, that type of cop. Yeah, I would say so. Portrayed as a bit of a curmudgeon, Detective Phil Fish. <laughs> in in my brief writ of research earlier, he's actually younger than the guy who plays the Japanese cop. Oh, right. Who died only a few years after that episode. Yeah, a, yeah. and I believe there's an episode where they, they break character ah, to talk about yeah. the guy who, who played uh, Nick Yamana. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, I, I think the fish guy was perhaps only in his, like, 50s. So obviously he looks considerably older than that, I would say. But Yeah. I will watch more episodes, I ah. think, to see how the dynamic plays out in sort of other stories. Yeah. There's, like I say, there isn't any particular individual parallel there's no steve carella character no. who's almost you know carella's almost too good to be true a lot of the time isn't he and there's no horrible slobby cop certainly in the stuff we've seen like an andy parker who you would just hate because he would be too much in a sitcom to do that i think and they sort of spread i think what they do is they spread sort of those traits around a bit more don't they that's right yeah no uh fat ollie either Oh, well, you we, never know. There might be a guest-type character who comes in every week, really bigoted, and then... Yeah. Although, uh, Fat Ollie, with his later aspirations as an author, I believe, um, I've forgotten the character's name, the African-American character is also in this an aspiring author, so maybe there's some... Yes. Uh, th- 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 some parallels there, but that would go the other way, I guess, because uh, McBain wouldn't have introduced um, Ollie's literary aspirations until some years after the later episodes of Barney Miller and Ed. Oh, yes, perhaps he was copying from Barney Miller. <laughs> oh, blimey, it swings both ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, perhaps, yeah. perhaps that's why he kept quiet about it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm having that bit. <laughs> I have seen another episode where Detective Ron Harris is Ron writing Harris. a book about police work, and it's it's occupying his attention when he should actually be doing proper, proper policing. <laughs> Favourite moment from that episode? I think mine was when the blue Christmas tree turns up. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty great, yeah. Yeah, the guy trying to get the contraption out of the squad room was quite... <laughs> he, 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 I think he was possibly my favourite incidental character. 
Yeah, so this is the guy who's tried to throw this toy back through the, the department store window, or has thrown it back through the department store window, and can't put it together. And then while he's in the cage, Wojo puts it together for him. In an act of what you would think is, oh, a lovely Christmassy moment, that even though they're about to arrest this guy because the department store wants to press charges, you know, they've helped him out by saving his, his state of mind by building the toy for him. <laughs> And then he walks <laughs> through the door. Yeah. Mm. He just, just looks so unbelievably crestfallen, doesn't he? Yeah, he was a good uh, actor, him. I liked him. Mm. Mr. Craig, played by Jay Gerber. And they get the mugger at the end as well with a bit of a sting operation. Oh, yeah. Fish finally persuaded to dress up as Santa Claus, even though he's, he's attempted to avoid it by hiding in the bathroom. Yeah. Mm. Who out of the 87th Precinct would have ended up having that job of dressing up as a department store Santa? I feel like mm. it would have been Maya. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it'd be Maya Maya or possibly Andy Parker. Oh, Andy Parker, yeah. It would have been the surliest Santa you could imagine, wouldn't he? Yeah, because he, he would have taken great joy in arresting somebody at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, true. Sure. Yeah. But it would, have been a, it would have been sort of insult to injury if Maya Maya was made to do it, given that he's Jewish. And, <laughs> <laughs> so even though it says in That's the books true. that he has a sort of Christmas celebration at home with a tree and stuff like that, it perhaps would have been a, a, a double irony that yeah. he had to then dress as Santa or Father Christmas. For his work, <laughs> so it's just nice, isn't it? It's just a, it's twenty five minutes of I wouldn't say banter because it's not it doesn't feel no. like banter, and I don't no. like the word banter particularly. Yeah. But it's the, like you say, the jokes landed still. I thought for the most part still do. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if if you were to watch an entire entire runs of it, some bits are going to have dated, but writing still seemed fairly fresh to me. Um, it's yeah, like really. Good, likeable, diverse cast. Yeah, very entertaining. Yeah. And a good uh, title sequence as well with classic freeze frames on the characters. Yeah, As nice. they smile to want. the camera and turn and whatever they're doing. <laughs> yep. Something like that. Well, while some very 70s bass uh, rumbles on lugubriously in the background. Very nice. Like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder whether the credits have evolved like sometimes they do. Jazzed up the... Uh, Theme tune, maybe, yeah, in the later know. series. Maybe there's even synthesizers on yeah. season eight, maybe. I'll have yeah. to dig into one of the later episodes and find yeah. out whether everyone's shooting lasers instead of revolvers and <laughs> flying, Almost flying cars. Certainly. Yeah. Barney Miller 2000. Landed on the precinct uh, in a helicopter. Yeah. Or a hover car. Hovercopter. I think the, the message there is it's a nice little Christmas episode of what turns out to be quite a good, funny show and yeah. worth checking out. Um, yeah, definitely a really good sort of companion to the 87th Precinct, I think, certainly. Yeah, yep. I can understand why people were mentioning it to us now. Yep. So to keep things ticking over, I thought we were better just check in on the Christmas charts for, UK, for the UK oh, well. and the US in 1976. All right. Well, okay. we, we certainly should. What was number one in the UK in Christmas 1976? Was was it Boney M yet? It wasn't Boney M. We're a bit M. too early for Boney Wizard. M. Wizard? No. Abba? Abba are in the charts, but... Uh, it is, is, it, Christmas, is it one of the it's famous... Song. It's, it's, it's not one that's lasted on, say, like the popular Christmas song. Um, Shawaddy Waddy? No. No. Uh, I always wanted to be Hey Mr. Christmas by Shawaddy Waddy, and it never is for some reason. It's uh, When a Child is Born by oh, Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis. Bloody hell. Which is... Clearly a classic Christmas song, but as uh, it's not the pop type one, is it? It's not a, so much. A, so you don't hear that very much. No. Can't see. But I will tell you what else was in the chart. Number five in the chart was Portsmouth by Mike Oldfield. Oh, oh very nice. Which is a quite a little jig <laughs> going on there. Not Christmassy, though, is it particularly? 
But number 10 in the charts in the UK was a song called Bionic Santa. Oh. By? Chris Hill, who was a DJ. And I have never heard of this. I've never even heard hints of what of this person. No, I don't know how that's not become a perennial Christmas favourite, really. Well, it was his second number 10 hit, because he'd done a Christmas one the year before. And it's just like cut-ups of sounds from TV shows and films <laughs> and fr- from Parliament. And he sort of tells a story about Santa having to be rebuilt after having a crash. And it somehow goes through this thing where Margaret Thatcher and Jim Callaghan are, are fighting in the Commons. And it's, it's just really, really weird. It sounds absolutely insane. It's not a song. It's, <laughs> it's a novelty record. So how it got to number 10... Yeah, who on earth was and buying that? That was at a time when you had to sell a lot of records to get to number 10 as well, wasn't it? Yeah. They're like... Very old. <laughs> but it's clearly not lasted in uh, popular history. Mythology. I hope yeah. that there are some families who still treasure their copies of Bionic Santa and put it uh, gather around the uh, phonograph <laughs> to play it every year. Yeah. <laughs> but it just goes to show that for every big famous song, there's 8 billion... Mm. lesser things that still somehow managed to get into the charts yeah, but sadly for the authors of these things not all of them become white Christmas no quite but the number one in the United States is Tonight's the Night by Rod Stewart oh and there's no Christmas songs in the top ten at all in, in America rubbish mm. just doesn't seem to be a tradition there from mm. how we've looked at stuff over the past few years when it's cropped up no don't know whether it becomes so there's a bit of a thing over here isn't it yeah yeah, it's, well, don't, it's, don't know when it started. Yeah, I 70s, don't know. The, the 70s was a big time for it, wasn't it? Um, I mean, we've always had the odd one, but I think it, it, that sort of mid-70s era, there seemed to seemed to be a bit of a concentration of them. Yeah. And then sort of onwards from there, really. They were saying on the radio, whether this was true, that uh, that uh, Noddy Holder one yeah. is like the second most played song in the world or something, or, or second highest... Royalty earner song in the world. That's quite possible. I mean, it's uh, I it's all sort of right. a phenomenon unto itself, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, there's definitely a reason why he's just he just sits and stays at home in his Scrooge McDuck style swimming pool full of money, while the rest of them are out there to still slogging around the cabaret circuit. Did he write it? <laughs> yes. All oh, right. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely done very well out of it. Yeah. But if you were settling down to the big Christmas film in 1976 on the BBC you would be getting ready to watch Oliver. Oh. The big musical extravaganza. Aye. But later that night, you might be watching the Morecambe and Wise show. Oh, you might well. And for our American listeners particularly, Morecambe and Wise sort of had no impact in the States whatsoever. They just didn't really work when they'd popped out there for a few bits and pieces. But they were huge in the UK, and by the 70s, they were like a double-act institution. And they had these big Christmas shows. And the the guest stars on the 1976 show was Elton John, mm-hmm. John Thor and Dennis Waterman. <laughs> so that's a crime connection there. Would they be pretending, they'd be in character, wouldn't they, I bet? Presumably, yeah. I imagine so. And uh, people like Kate O'Mara, Marion Montgomery and the Nolans. Oh, brilliant. So an all-star cast Oof, there. Yeah. But they'd have all had their Christmas you know, the two Ronnies would have done, and it certainly would. Yeah. But the Morgan Wise ones, particularly, they, they, they always crop up every Christmas. There's some kind of, and it's the 1973 one possibly that crops up most often. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a an essential part of Christmas viewing, isn't it? And in, uh, in the UK, really, yeah, it's it's woven into the the whole fabric of the thing. 
bless them. So, I asked for some questions from the internet world and our listeners and friends. Okay. And I've I've got some silly ones, and I've got some not so silly ones. I have got a one from Twitter from our friend George Solis asking us what are the best Christmas related stories written by Ed McBain. So what I can do is I can give you a rundown of the Christmas stuff oh. he wrote. He wrote a short story called The Merry Merry Christmas in December 1957, published in Manhunt, and was later republished under the name The Very Merry Christmas in a couple of collections. He wrote a story called I Saw Mommy Killing Santa Claus. Right. which was, sounds like the best, doesn't it? <laughs> so far. Which was made available through the Mysterious Bookshop in their Mysterious Bookshop at Christmas collection. There's obviously And All Through the House, which is the short 87th Precinct one, which was originally published in Playboy in 1984, and then in that lovely illustrated edition in 1994. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the 87th Precinct stories themselves, The Pusher ends on Christmas Day, basically with Corella in hospital. Uh. Sadie, When She Died, takes place over Christmas. Then there's Ghosts, Eight Black Horses, and Money, Money, Money are all set at the Christmas period. We haven't got to those ones yet. And also the standalone book, Downtown, is set over Christmas as well. Mm. I mean, out of all of those ones, the ones I've read and ones that I've done so far, I think The Pusher's my favourite thing set at Christmas, because that could have been the end of the 87th Precinct. It certainly could. It's the third one out of the first three commissioned, and you've got your main character. Dying on Christmas Day. (sighs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, very possibly, yeah, of the ones we've covered so but, far. But, uh, yeah, Eight Black Horses and Money, 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 I think absolute mm. corkers from my recollection. Yeah, of them, so, uh, I think but, so, yeah, definitely. Some more festive treats to look forward to there. And and ghosts as and, well. And ghosts as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will be very interested to see what ghosts is like on a reread in this context, the way we're doing it now. But Yeah, that's true. I'd... But I'd, I don't think that would be my nomination <laughs> anyway <laughs> for best. The and all through the house story is good as well. It's a lovely little little. That's a vignette of of squadroom oh. life. That could be an episode of Barney Miller, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah. Could. So my nomination is the pusher anyway, because just because of its significance in the series. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, go with that. Definitely. Yeah. It would be interesting to see one day if the original ending where he did kill oh. off Corella. So there's that's the answer to those ones there. That's run it down. That's some of the suggestions, but. That's the joy with the 87th Precinct of them being set in particular times. You can always go through and find the Halloween stories, the summer stories, the <laughs> Thanksgiving stories, the Christmas stories, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Our friend Steve Morse has suggested this question. Oof. The publisher of the 87th Precinct books, which these days is Amazon essentially, <laughs> comes to you and says that they want to revive interest with a large budget online or TV advert series. Pitch an idea to them. How would you sell the 87th oh, Precinct crazy. now as a collection of stories? It's Ooh. tricky, isn't it? Because you don't really get those sorts of campaigns for books. No. But, but crime and crime storytelling is huge. Mm. Yeah, you've got to try and tap into the uh, true crime wave at the moment. That's... Well, it's always been very popular, but I think with, certainly with Netflix now. now is like a... And the new Sky Crime is like mega TV money's being spent on uh-huh. it, isn't it? So you'd want to be advertising on those sorts of channels, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. you try to re- relaunch the book series with a bang. Yeah, uh-huh. so I think you'd have to yeah try and tap into that market. The uh, yeah great appeal of those is like, you know, 
a lot of the things might be quite famous, but you don't actually know kind of what happens. Mm. So maybe the, the who done it aspect mm-hmm. would be quite marketable, I suspect. I don't know, would you push the sort of the darkness of the stories or would you push the sort of squad side of it? That, you know, there's a cast of characters. I think that's what I'd go for. I'd want to be getting across the idea that you've got a cast of characters mm. that you're going to know and want to know what happens and you're going to be with them and they're going to take you through these amazing stories. Yeah. I don't know how you get it across. I think, cause I think pushing any sort of individual aspects of the types of stories, you'd run the risk of I think selling the series short anyway and also run the risk of someone picking up the wrong one and then going, well, that's not what it's like at all. If you if you did push the darkness of it, then there are certainly books that are going to going to have that, but then you might pick up one that's relatively sort of light-hearted and... and You'd, be, yeah, you'd feel like you'd be missold, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen ad, ad campaigns for things that will do that. Yeah. Um, and I could totally see a publisher trying to do that, just like, oh, well, really gritty, dark crime things are in, so let's push it as that, which, yeah, I, I don't think would fairly represent the series at all. I no. think it's that, but so much more as well. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of your mega-selling fiction now as repeating characters so that's clearly popular yeah so to tap into you know he has 40 odd books and they've essentially got a very steady cast yeah then, i mean you know you, you've got something to get your teeth into I'm you could do it as profiles you could sort of have adverts that sort of like have suggestions of profiles this is steve carella he's a cop in this you know in yeah. this city da, 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 da. and he could have the deaf man because you'd want to, you'd be a good selling point for, like you know, mega villain type things. You yeah. get your cast from our film or television series. Yeah, well, to, there you uh, go. It'd tie in nicely with the launch of our fantasy eighty seven precinct TV it? series. Yeah, just think. I mean, if if yeah, if, if you promote this on Amazon, maybe they they could pick up the option on the series, and yeah. you know, since they've already got the option on the books, if they're listening, I'm sure they are. Yeah. It seems daft that they haven't already been in touch, to be honest. Well, you know, I might have had some trouble getting presents <laughs> for this Christmas delivered by Amazon this year, but I'm willing to take their many millions of dollars in order to produce an 87 Precinct TV series. That That is that is big of you and noble. I, um, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's the season of giving. <laughs> it's a magnanimous gesture. I was just trying to think if I've ever actually seen an advert for a series of books on TV, and I don't think I have. I don't think so. The only place I see adverts for books, apart from in specific literary supplements in newspapers or whatever, uh, railway stations. Oh, yeah. 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 So we could definitely come up with a series of railway station Airports, ads for these things. Airports, places, yeah, that's, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and, you know, given the popularity of kind of a lot of Scandinavian kind of police procedural novels, maybe you could... S- to come up with something that would sort of lead people into that back to where some of that kind of genre has come from, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly how you go about it. Yeah. You'd have to play up the sort of heritage of the series, mm. really, wouldn't you, as well? Yeah. No, it'd be a very interesting thing to work on. Yeah, sure you, would. Whether you went sort of like focusing on characters or focusing on individual books or focusing... Yeah. So it's a good question, but I think the clear answer here is that we are not advertising executives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now we have a question from Ben Baker. Now, Ben Baker is a writer and he's a host of the Don't Let's Chart podcast with his friend, Phil. It's a very good podcast. I like it very much. And he's got a question for us here. And the question is, what would be the ultimate gift for some of the characters in the in the 87th Precinct? And would it be a £10 voucher from Boots? 
<laughs> so what would you get? What would you get the characters in the eighty seventh precinct? Ooh. What would you get, Maya Maya, for instance? I don't know. A hat. You get Andy Parker. A hat would be good. You get Andy Parker a clean shirt, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be a bad idea. You get him a clean shirt. He probably wouldn't appreciate it, but you could definitely use it. Mm, certainly a um, like a deodorant kind of set for uh, Fat Ollie, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> so, uh, links, links, shower gel and spray. Yeah, one yeah. of those. Yeah, you could certainly use that. Or something like that. <laughs> tusk, yeah. Um, yeah, so you could definitely get him some smellies, couldn't you? Alf Miscolo, you'd get him some nice coffee. Mm, yeah. To try and encourage him towards making coffee that tasted nice. Yeah, one yeah. of those expensive George Clooney advertised yeah. oh, machines oh, yeah. with, the, with the little thing you shove in so space coffee yeah yeah george clooney's space In, coffee so it should become impossible to make a bad cup of coffee i'm sure he still find a way mm-hmm. bert kling what would you get bert kling oh, i don't know other than a good talking to <laughs> which is what he needs half the time in these books as well really yeah self-help book i think probably <laughs> what kling needs. probably yeah yeah uh, very don't know true. where you get corella don't know yeah. What, what does Corella Corella's The man who's got everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's got he's got his nice house that he bought quite cheaply. Mm. He's got two kids. He's got a a living nanny who doesn't want paying. Yeah, essentially, yeah. he's got a, a beautiful wife, and everything's fine forever. Nothing yeah. for him. He can buy us a present. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. And he's such a good cop. He never makes it past second grade. It's just <laughs> yeah. But how to get ahead? In policing. Who else have we got? Hal Willis. Um, get him some platform shoes. Be, yeah, absolutely. That that could be good for him. I'm sure there was one of the ones I've read relatively recently where he, he's describing someone who's five foot nine as medium height, and poor Hal Willis, who's five foot eight, is always described as being incredibly short. Yeah. It's like, come on, be fair. <laughs> I think generally they'd all appreciate whatever you got them, except perhaps Andy Parker, who wouldn't understand why you were buying him a nice fresh shirt for him to wear. Yeah. He'd probably appreciate it more if you just brought him a six-pack of beer, to be honest. Yeah. But, uh... yeah. And I think Fat Ollie would uh, have something to say about being given a toiletries gift set as well. <laughs> not necessarily the most self-aware of those characters. Yeah, anyway. Absolutely not. Maybe get Bob O'Brien some kind of good luck charm. <laughs> a load of horseshoes. <laughs> <laughs> So you wouldn't know it's just too hard, you know. It's not like Barney Miller where they all go and give give each other gifts. Yeah, you don't find out what any of them are, do you? No. The only gift you know what it is is when the uh, inspector comes in and he's got a, a gift in his coat and he gets it out and it's clearly just a it's a half of whiskey or something like that. Half pint of whiskey. Which he think which Barney Miller thinks is being given to him, but no, it's for himself. Although we found out what some of the, the gifts that uh, that Ron Harris brought him were, didn't we, from the gas station or wherever oh, he yeah. That yeah. was quite good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did like a lucky dip around the room, so what what comes out? Yeah, they weren't wrapped they weren't wrapped up, were they? Mm. Shaving is it, set. Is it some kind of Mills and Boone type novel? Oh well, that had a good name, didn't it? <laughs> it did. The 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 tree house of desire or something <laughs> yeah. like that. So that's what Barney Miller gets off the drugstore shelf. Yeah, right. Uh, a pulp uh, romance novel called <laughs> Treehouse of Desire, which I'm sure would be brilliant. And so we've got a situation. We've got the cops of the 87th Precinct. They've handed each other presents. Parker's been offended. 
Ollie Weeks has turned up uninvited anyway. Naturally. It's Christmas Eve before they go home, a bit like Barney Miller. And the question from Gary Abbott, my brother, is they're having a Christmas party at the 87th Precinct. What happens? Well. What would happen if they tried to socialise inside the squad room, actually getting drunk and hanging out as friends? Yeah, they don't really do that ever, does he? Not much. I mean, we see them drinking together at things like Kling's wedding reception and yeah. and the like, but not not too much. No, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure Parker would just get drunk very quick and make a nuisance of himself. Yeah, probably. or pass out on his or desk. Pass out on his desk, most likely. Yeah, they'd just be telling stories, wouldn't they? They like telling really bad jokes to one another for there's hours a, and hours. There'd be a lot of that, end, wouldn't there? I suspect. I'm sure cotton whores would definitely cop off with someone in, uh, within about five minutes. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely would <laughs> Dick Gennaro wouldn't have a clue what was going on he wouldn't even know what day it was let alone why he was drinking in the squad room yeah, so. yeah he'd definitely embarrass himself horribly in, in some way shape or form wouldn't he it's certainly something that uh, McBain never felt any need to incorporate into any of the stories no Ollie Weeks would definitely turn up uninvited he certainly as su- would and- as suggested and and make the the whole event awkward and unpleasant for everyone else yeah. without realising he was doing so. But I think the simple answer to what would happen at, during a Christmas party at the 87th Precinct is some big crime would occur and it would interrupt the party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Almost certainly, yes. And they'd already have a cage full of drunks and muggers and things in the corner of the squad room anyway that they would be screaming across the room yeah, as they always are. interjecting uh, entertainingly and demanding to use the turret. It's not a lucky place, the 87th Precinct. You wouldn't be there enjoying yourself for long before something went horribly wrong. Nope. <laughs> so, so there you go. Anyway, well there we go. We've had a little bit of a Christmas chat, a little Christmas episode there because we'll be back in late January for the next main episode, once Steve-O's returned from investigating South Africa and its various pubs and cricket grounds. Indeed, yeah. I'm going as far as Bruges, which I suspect won't be as warm. Going anywhere, Morgan? Um, Yoxall. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Exotic Yoxall. Yeah. Ah, so... Thank you very much to everyone for listening to this and carrying on listening to us talking about things. Thank you for everyone who contributes and who has sort of sent us questions or joined in with like the fantasy casting of the 87th Precinct. Don't forget it's Monaghan and Munro next time. Oh, uh, yeah. No, it wasn't. It was, it the, wasn't. It wasn't no. Monaghan and Monroe. Was Don't it? listen to me. I'm an idiot. Who is it's, it? It's the Stillies, isn't it? Oh, so, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, Fats Donner and, Donner and Danny, Danny Gimp. Gimp. Yeah. So Stool Pigeons next time. But yeah, everyone who contributes to that, that's brilliant. That really helps us out. And thank you very much for putting up with all our daft chat about British ephemera. I think we're about to go an entire episode without mentioning certain words, and I think we should leave it at that. That's, it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> that is the Christmas miracle. Um, well, so I do hope everyone will continue to enjoy our McBain journey as we head towards the latter part of the 1970s and into the 1980s during the, the coming year mm-hmm. and beyond. So I'm going to say a very merry goodbye. Goodbye. And fare thee well. Well, well, Merry Christmas, Mark. Merry Christmas. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Very funny.